It is a great pleasure to be with you this morning. It's been a long time coming, to say the least, uh, to finally be here, to have moved my family uh, out to Newburgh. Uh, they're with us this morning. And to begin in earnest uh, my ministry here. So I am greatly excited and greatly encouraged to be with you this morning and to begin this uh, season of my life, season of our life together as a congregation. The desire has been, as I've met with the session and various leaders of this congregation, folks who helped see Shehalem Valley start, to be able to encapsulate in some way an explanation of why we're here in Newburgh. There are a lot of churches here. Why is Shehalem Valley here? What is our part in God's plan, God's presence here in this community? How do we fit in? And what are we about? And so I've tried to, over the past months, uh, talk with people about what got you motivated to begin Shehalem Valley. And so over the next few weeks, not next week, but this week and then the weeks following, we're going to be going through a series really laying out who we are as a congregation at a principal level and then seeing fundamentally what God does with us as a congregation as we move forward in the months and years ahead. And so what you have in front of you, the sermon text which I was going to preach uh, this morning, I realized uh, after I sent the stuff to Frank that... Um, that I was starting a sermon series without an introduction, uh, which isn't terribly helpful. We were going to jump right into the middle. So I wanted to go ahead and do a a different sermon this morning to sort of lay the groundwork on what I'm thinking. It'll make sense, Lord willing, in a minute. There was a a bubblegum, I think it's called Bubblegum Rock song. Anyway, I'm a Barbie girl living in a Barbie world. It's plastic. It's fantastic. There is a reality that the world in which we live, there is that sense that a lot of life has become simply plastic. It's commercialized. It's not real. It's not substantive. That happens in the world. And sometimes it happens even within the walls of the church that there will be a sense in which we have to present a perfect image, a perfect identity. And we create for ourselves an environment that, quite frankly, feels more plastic than it does real. The realities of the uh, bruises and scrapes, the pain and sorrow, the joys and successes, we don't always have one sort of facial expression glued on our face. At least we shouldn't. And as the world often looks at us, do they think that the church has presented itself in a way that, quite frankly, seems artificial? And this morning, if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through uh, 47, this early phase of Christ's church, this early phase as the people of God begin to gather together and build the foundations for the community of faith within the world, we see this basic outline that I believe will be foundational to who we are as a congregation moving forward. 
And so part of what I'm trying to do here this morning is if you're standing in line at the coffee cottage and someone says, well, where do you go to church? And you say, I go to Shehalem Valley. And they say, what's that? What are your, what's your church about? You're going to hear these three phrases over and over again. Open door, open heart, and open hands as a tight way. And what I want us to do over the next few weeks is unpack what those three little cute phrases mean. And hopefully, therefore, will be helpful as you're beginning to communicate to your friends and neighbors what is it that Shehalem Valley is about. And as I have talked with so many of you, I feel like that's a tight way of expressing why this congregation is here. And we see all of those three things in this passage, an open door, an open heart, and open hands. So let's turn to the text now, Acts chapter 2, 42 through following. Hear now God's word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods as they gave to one another who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do require your spirit that we might again have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that we might again be refreshed by the gospel, by the good news. And may we be encouraged as you move this young congregation forward that we might be an encouragement in this place. In Christ's name, amen. Recent statistics, you can do with them what you want, but if you interact within the culture at any level, outside the walls of the church, you know that in greater and greater degrees, the church's reputation, the American church's reputation within our culture is mixed at best and poor on a regular basis. That various surveys will say that the church has become politicized, culturally isolated and irrelevant, afraid, afraid of what's happening in our culture. We hear fear language within the church. That we come off as pious, that we come off as hypocritical, and judgmental. One study from uh, Barna showed that most non-Christians think Christians don't like them, that we actually are opposed to them, that we hate them, that we think they're no good. Something in the life of the church in America in general has changed in such a way that at least on a public level, The church has lost some of what we see in this text, that we are favored by all people, that we are an accepted and 
encouraged institution within our community. There's something has changed. And we are, could do a lot of work and finger pointing on how we got to this point, And that's not really all that useful in this sermon. You can sit with me at the coffee cottage and I'll tell you what I think is wrong. I'm known to have opinions. But the bottom line is, it's not so much pointing blame or pointing the finger, but saying, what is it that the church is called to do? And as we look at this text, what is the church called to do? And how can we, in ever greater degrees, express that within the community of Newburgh and in the Oregon state in which we live? How do we begin to embrace this? How do we head off the decline of the church and its presence within this culture. No church started out wanting to become politicized. No church starts out wanting to become isolated or judgmental or pietistic. But it happens. How do we start? How did the first disciples start out on a road that in the course of 300 years saw the culture transformed? And Christianity grow. How do we begin to do that? Well, I said this morning that uh, this little three cute little phrases are open door, open heart, and open hands. In this text, interestingly, I speak for a living. Interestingly enough, it's actually open heart, open hands, open door. If you look at the text, you've got forty-two through forty-three. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and wonder. When we use the term open heart, we're using that in the truest biblical sense. In the scriptures, the heart is where the mind and the emotions and the will meet. God says that he's going to give us a new heart. Take our heart of stone and turn it to a heart of flesh. In scriptures, it's not the mind that needs changing, but the heart. The heart needs transformed. Why? Because what we love affects what we think and what we do. There, Where your heart is, there where your treasure is as well. And so if you are honest about what you love, you know that it deeply affects what you think, what you justify and rationalize in your mind, what you begin to uh, focus your mind on and meditate on. What you love and what your heart does has much more impact, a greater impact on what you think and do than simply trying to change either your will uh, or your actions, your mind or your deeds. And so when we talk about the need to have an open heart in this congregation, it means a desire to see God transform what we love and therefore that we might grow in understanding of who God truly is. When we fall more and more in love with our Savior, we will want to know more and more about Him, which is where the theology comes in, which is where the Scripture reading comes in, the teaching and the discipleship. Our hearts have to be open to it, not just our minds. Because until we fall in love with Him, we won't really know Him, even if we learn more facts about Him. And churches sometimes can get trapped in this. We can get trapped in desiring to know more and accidentally turn that into learning more theology, learning more facts, having it more together. And that's not enough. 
changing our minds will not be enough. And if the world sees our hearts being transformed in what we love, that will become more attractive. What does it look like? Well, let's say what you really love is financial security. Then what you would be willing to sacrifice is family time, leisure, time with God, even your morals. I mean, aren't we in some degree in this financial situation because people were beginning to willing to sacrifice certain ethics about how you do business? Why? Because they loved financial security. That's what they loved. And therefore, their actions and even their thought became twisted. Find out what you love, and you'll understand why you do what you do. And together as a community, we want to gather together and encourage one another and grow in that love of God, that love of Christ, so that we will begin to see both our thoughts and our actions transformed. We have to have open hearts. That's what we see here in this first part of this chapter of Acts. The people wanted their hearts to be changed. They wanted to learn and know. And I know it's hearts and not just knowledge because it says apostles teaching, but what does it also say? The breaking of bread, the sacraments, that closeness and intimacy with God, that knowing God in a biblical sense of knowing Him intimately, not just as an idea or a philosophy or an ethic. So first, we're called to have an open heart, to learn and to grow and to understand and know the God who loves us. But also open hands, right? If you look at this section 44 through 46, you'll see that there is life-altering generosity. Uh, Again, the Bible never fits into a category that we have as human beings. Is it capitalistic? Is it socialistic? I don't know. The Bible tells me I'm supposed to work hard and to rest and to be generous. Now, if worldly philosophies have transformed generosity into state-sponsored taking my money away, well, that's fine for them. Call that socialism. But what I do know in Scripture is that people are supposed to be radically generous enough with what they have, that they're willing to sell things, have less, so that those with nothing can have something. Don't let your mind go to worldly categories like socialism, communes versus capitalism. and work. Those aren't biblical categories, my friends. And if we're to live with open hands and lay ourselves before Scripture, we're going to look at texts like this and have to wrestle with what does it mean to be radically generous. As I learn to know who God is and God's love begins to transform me and convert me, to change my very being My views on things like my time, my physical resources, my material resources, all of those things which God has gifted to me, my views on those things will begin to change. They can't help but not change. The text doesn't say these people became generous so that God would like them. The the text says that as they gathered together and learned from the apostles the teachings of who Christ was, and as they broke bread together in the sacramental union of the Lord's Supper, 
that they became radically generous with one another and with their community. It doesn't mean that it was easy for them. We have a text later on where somebody decides to pretend how much they gave to God. It is a process. But clearly, an open heart leads to open hands. That we no longer have to fear that we won't have enough love, that we won't have enough security, that we won't have enough fill in the blank, that we can then begin to be generous with what we have because the thing we love has promised and given us everything has made us co-heirs for eternity of everything that God has poured out on His Son, we have been given in Christ. How, and the more we know that love through an open heart, the more our hands will stop being clenched holding on to what we have and begin to loosen to those within our congregation, within our body of faith, but also inevitably in our neighbors around us. And as Shehalem Valley grows in our understanding of what it means to have our hearts converted by Christ and His love, our hands will begin to loosen and we will become generous. And for some of us, we'll even learn to accept generosity from others. Because, you know, that's sort of given in the text here. Some of us who are really good givers are really lousy receivers. I probably fit into that category That's another thing. When our hearts become open, we become less proud. So we're able to accept the help, to accept the generosity, and to be grateful for God's gift of His people and their love for us and love for one another. So open hands also means you're open to receiving, not just to giving what you have, but open to receiving as we grow again in our understanding of the love both given to us and that we're called to pass on to those that live around us. And then lastly, open door. They were well thought of by everyone in the community. There was that sense of connection with their culture and their place. And God added to their numbers daily. As our hearts are transformed by the love of Christ, and therefore our actions and our Our thoughts and our deeds are transformed by that and we begin to loosen our hands to the giving and receiving of generosity. The world will inevitably see something different. They won't see judgmentalism. They won't see hypocrisy. Why? Because you have to be generous to me because I sin and I need your forgiveness. And in the same way, some of you may sin as well. I don't want to be judgmental or presumptive, but I imagine that some of you do. And you need the generosity and forgiveness of the people in your community. And when the world sees us being generous to one another, not ostracizing because of sin or differences or brokenness, but accepting in love and working with and bearing one another's sins and needs. The world wants to see a place where they can rest where they can sit down and be themselves, not in a plastic world, not with a smile plastered on our face and false sincerity, but the deeper emotions of love and grief, joy, celebration. The open door, which we'll go into next week, and that's what that Second Samuel passage is about. 
What will it mean to create an open door where there is an honesty and a transparency which allows people to know that Christ's church is made up of people who are growing, not people who are done growing? Of honesty and sincerity, not the need to create an image. False piety, false morality, but a transparency uh, of what was being done in and through us by Christ. How do we do that? How do we begin this journey of having an open door, open hearts, and open hands? Well, it comes from the passage in 1 Corinthians 2 that I inserted this morning. I desire to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. It is the cross. It is that reality of God's love poured out and the significance of it. Paul desires, in fact, you can look at other passages. Galatians 2.20, uh, 3.1, 6.14. Galatians is full of this imagery of knowing nothing but Christ and Him crucified. That language of dying to self, of having our old hearts ripped out because it's a dead heart, and having a live, new, loving heart emplaced in our chests and in our hearts, our lives. So it's a heart, so it would be redundant. To know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. How do we lose our way? We take our eyes off Christ and the cross. We put our eyes on programs, how big the church can be, how big our church budget is. Who knows what numerous things can take a church's eyes off of Christ and Him crucified. The enemy in our own hearts have plenty of ideas of how we can become distracted from focusing on Christ and Him crucified. And how that is the way of wisdom, the way of growth, the way of the gospel. We lose our first love. That's the warning later on in the book of Revelation. You've lost your first love. Our only danger, the only way Shehalem Valley Presbyterian Church gets off kilter is we lose our first love. We fall in love with our theology. We fall in love with our morality. We fall in love with anything else but Christ and Him crucified. God will bless this church with many years of ministry and service if we do not lose our first love. And if we let ourselves fall more and more deeply in love with Him. May that be true of this generation and the generations to come in this church. In Christ's name, amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful. Grateful for the opportunity to be loved. Grateful for the opportunity to pour that love out on others. May you grow us in you first and foremost. And may you add to your kingdom through the love and the prayers and the work of your people here. In Christ's name, amen.